0: Hello, I'm Simon Talbot.
1: And I'm Wendy Dean.
0: And this is Moral Matters.
1: So today's episode was an amazing conversation. And I, I, I was able to talk to Dr. Donald Berwick, who is currently the senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, which He founded in 1989 and led for 19 years as president and CEO. In
0: 2010, Dr. Berg was also the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and currently is a clinical professor of pediatrics and healthcare policy at Harvard Medical School. And to add to that list, uh, he's also an honorary knight of the British Empire uh, since 2005.
1: And really, um, um, we could go on and on about what he's done in his career it is really an amazing testament to a brilliant thinker and um, simon you have a great story about how how we first met him and got got introduced to him
0: yeah um i was uh, at the time probably a year ago um flying somewhere i don't even remember where i was flying and i was in the airport and uh grabbing a bite to eat before my flight and my phone went from a number I didn't know. Um, I answered it and uh, he said, oh, hi, this is, uh, this is Don Berwick. Um, are you free? And of course, my plane was about to leave and I had to say no. But at the time, I was sort of not quite sure it was the Don Berwick that I actually was expecting <laughs> it to be. Um, <laughs> because why so would he
1: just randomly be calling Why it? would he call me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so I said to him, I'll call you as soon as my flight lands. And, um, and of course, uh, it was... Uh, Sir, Dr. Donald Berwick, and we had a, a fabulous conversation having um, it, it, the background being that he had read our original article on moral injury and wanted to um, explore our thoughts on this. And uh, this was the uh, very intentional connection from him, but a very random phone call to me.
1: And, and since then, we've had other conversations with him, and it is just clear that the way he thinks about the problem of healthcare. And how everyone in the system is struggling is really important for us all to understand.
0: Yeah, very much. And, you know, uh, I think one of the key things um, about Dr. Berwick is, is not only is he just a, a visionary in healthcare improvement, but he has thought about this stuff deeply. He has thought about it from the point of view of a clinician, the point of view of an administrator, uh, the point of view of a, a human being as a, as a patient in the system. And he really, um, he, he gets it
1: right. And I'm really sorry that you were on call this week and weren't able to join us for the interview. Me too, but he promised to come back. So, um, we'll make sure it's when you're available next
0: time. That sounds great.
1: So let's get to the conversation. So Don, um, thank you so much for coming and joining us here on Moral Matters today. Um, this is a conversation we've been looking forward to for a long time.
2: Uh, it's totally my pleasure, Wendy, and thank you for all the work you're doing. It's so important.
1: <laughs> thank you. So um, in, you have been involved in healthcare transformation for a long time. Um, you started Driving Better Healthcare in 1989, when you founded um, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. And lately you have taken a courageous stance where you have said that the need for change in healthcare is a moral imperative. And I wonder over the course of those, those years, what have you seen that has caused you to shift to that, that stance? That it's not just we don't just need to change, but it's a moral imperative that we change how healthcare is structured.
2: I don't think it's any one thing, Wendy. Um, I will state quite uh, clearly that your uh, writings with Simon um, were uh, very important to me recently that you you actually helped me think it through even more. So I want to give you that credit. Um, First, You know, as I my work has been on improvement, as you said, for now, 30, 35 years and I'm getting older. And uh, when I take stock and look back and say, how how much have we done and how much is there yet to do about improvement? um, There's so much more to do. And I've I really no longer believe that we are. We are um, impoverished in our ideas about what would work. We, we have evidence, we have theory, we, we kind of know it would work. But by work, I mean do things like make care safer for patients so they don't get hurt in care. Right. Uh, be truly, authentically more patient-centered so people don't feel helpless or battered or unheard in healthcare. care. Um, much more reliable scientifically. We, we are just, we vary wildly instead of using... Science to help people reliably, um, and by the way, stopping the waste. Healthcare is um, in America, especially in the U.S., is just—I call it confiscatory. It's such a noble enterprise, you know. We're, you know, we're so good, and we are. You know, people are trying hard to heal, but we are just absorbing so much of the economy and opportunity, and and adding costs to people and. To, organizations and the government, that, that the, the money has other really important uses. And we, we keep asking for more, even though the evidence of waste is phenomenal. Right. And then probably most of all is the, uh, our, our um, disparities in care based on race and uh, ethnicity and, and uh, wealth that other countries don't tolerate anywhere near the level we do, and that we've known about for decades.
1: And and it's almost as though if we if we had if we had the will to address the waste, some of those other issues would be much more possible, much easier, much. There would be a lower barrier to yeah. changing them.
2: Yeah, you said you said uh, the the word is will exactly right. So it's like this quest for will. Like where where do we find the the urgency. So, you know, the normal way to do it is with the, with economics to say, well, we have to realize that we'll, you know, we'll be better for the economy, and uh, if we fix healthcare, or whatever, or that um, some some argument about the, about human capital or something like that. Number one, I, I mean, that isn't too inspiring. But number two is. Um, we, we, we've looked at that that way for a long time. How, how many years have we been adjusting incentives and pay for performance and new, new, new models of payment and we haven't gotten close to what we could achieve? So exactly right, Wendy. It's, it's like, well, we, we seem to lack the will to make the changes and so that brings me to, to a very, very uncomfortable place. I think this moral vocabulary is really uncomfortable because it, it sounds so self-righteous. And In some sense, accusatory, you know, as if like my my morals are better than your morals, or uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm there's good and there's bad. I, I don't think it's Manichaean like that, but I, I'll tell you, I, I, I just don't, I've, I've stopped thinking there's any other place to go than values,
1: yeah. And and we're we're familiar with that uncomfortable place when we're talking about morals and moral injury, but we're also in the in the space where we think there we can't come up with a better way to think about it. That when, when, when we take those oaths to put our patients first, that becomes a part of us. And then as we go out into practice and have to compromise that because of the realities of healthcare and the realities of our unwillingness to make those choices as a society, that that becomes a very painful place for clinicians to be.
2: Anyone to be, anyone mm-hmm. to be. And I think well, actually one of the dilemmas that you must face given the eloquent uh, case you made is how to, how to balance the, um, the belief, if you share it with me, that most, most people don't want to do harm. I mean, the, 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 the moral calling that makes a physician or a nurse somewhat self-sacrificial, so somewhat willing to give up stuff to help people. That's, it. That's in everybody. It's in every kid. I'm a pediatrician. I'm a grandfather and father and kids want to help too. They, they love helping. So uh, when you get into the moral vocabulary, it's like this, this sense that there are these people that want to help and others that are stopping them from helping. That's not actually quite the dynamic, is it?
1: No, it's not. And I think people people very often what happens is clinicians make those other people, the administrators in healthcare. And so there's a divide, there's an us versus them clinicians versus administrators. And I, I really don't think that there's anybody who goes into healthcare with any other mission than to make patients better, whether they're administrators or they're clinicians.
2: Maybe there are some and probably there are there, you know, there are people who just are driven by greed for whatever reason, either backgrounds or their first, I don't know, or who are willing to be deceptive or or uh, lie to others or themselves. But that, I, I don't think that's certainly not most people. I don't even think it's more than a few people. Right. But they can draw a lot of attention. But still, that doesn't get out of the box that you put us in, which is like, how do we understand how we good people, (laughs) we good and well-intended people uh, can act in such a way as not to solve the problems that need solving? Uh, We're in some kind of trap here, some kind of box that we have to get out of.
1: So what do you think that box is? Because I agree with you. I agree that when we talk to people, everybody feels uncomfortable and wants things to change. But then when when we ask that question of how do we change, what do we change? That's, that's where the energy leaves the room.
2: I don't know the answer. I think, I think I have some hypotheses. One, it one is corporate corporatization that, that, Mm. uh, you know, we've actually chosen to make healthcare uh, uh, in the United States, a place where immense amounts of money change hands and investors can get paid a lot and people get rich. And in fact, Economically, the healthcare engine in this country is one of the most powerful engines for regressive economic transfers that we have invented in this country. It is it is constantly shifts resources from people who have less to people who have more, Um, which again invites that moral stiff neckedness. But that it it is true that we're transferring wealth in the wrong direction. People get rich. They don't want that to change. I don't think they think they're bad people. I don't think they go home at night saying, you know, like some evil genius, I've done this harm and I'm so proud of it. <laughs> they also are doing good. In fact, they are doing good. In many cases, they're, they're devoting their resources to helping heal. So there's the economic box. Part of it is leadership. And, um, and that's a thin read, but I, I do think that it really helps to have uh, voices, leaders, who's uh, I'm, vocabulary uh, uh, calls the question in a way that makes people feel proud. You know, you had uh, John Kennedy say, you know, ask not what you can what your country would do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I, that was that was the we made that the first page in our high school yearbook that year, that was that was what we said. Uh, you know, Martin Luther King's uh, calls to uh, compassion and generosity and sense of solidarity. It's, when you have leaders like that, it does help. People can say, Well, wait a minute, maybe I have to rethink this.
1: But you need to have leaders who are are empathic. Yes. to those who follow them.
2: Oh, absolutely. The only leadership I know that works is servant leadership where you're right. You're actually tuning into the motivations of the people that you're they're leading you, you're not leading them. You're just speaking, correct. Speaking what they would what they would like to have said.
1: Yeah. I mean a lot of times what we say is we want leaders to break down barriers, not, not explain why they're there. And in order to know what barriers to break down, you have to be listening to the people that you're leading.
2: Yeah. I mean, there is the, the other part of the, of the problem is what you've, again, written about so eloquently is that uh, it, it, once, once these vicious cycles begin, uh, it, it distances people from their own their own hearts, their own meaning and work. And so they, you know, you get to be jaded or cynical and then that, that starts bad cycles. But isn't it true, there, it, you know, there's it, a puzzling thing here, which is, although I think the, 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 the moral injury that, that you've defined and, and, and written about is there, when you actually, is it true that when you actually go into the healthcare workplace and you, and you visit a hospital ward or a, you know, a group of clinicians, there is this, there's really something quite inspiring about what's going on a lot of the time. In this, this COVID world, I mean, people are discouraged and they're upset and they're confused. But boy, I'll tell you the sense of mission, I, it's mission that you can feel in conversations with the healthcare workforce generally is very, very impressive.
1: And I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's why all of us, go into medicine or, you know, into the field of healthcare in some regard is because there's such, um, there's such an energy in that and there's, there's a clear goal and it's a noble goal that you're following. Um, but I think also that's part of the reason why it's so hard to make the economic argument about it because when you're talking about someone's health, it's really hard for people to say, no, here's the limit of, of what I think my health or my loved one's health is worth. So if it takes more, let's find more, not let's figure out how to cut back or how to trim waste because maybe that waste isn't waste to my loved one.
2: Agreed. I, I must say the uh, arguments about rationing care leave me somewhat... Uh, um, cold. I mean, I, I look. We're spending three and a half trillion dollars in this very wealthy country. Um, that should be enough. It, I mean, if we just think, keep asking, how can we spend that money to help those people? Period. You know, where they get everything they want and need. We should be able to do that. With the, anyone that would contend that our current level of expenditure, or frankly. 70% of our current level of expenditure. We couldn't meet all the needs that people really have for improving their well-being through health care. I, 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 I disagree with that on a factual basis. I, you, just, just walk into a hospital today or watch the flow of care and notice how much unneeded, unwanted, unnecessary, even harmful stuff goes on. And if we stop that,
1: I could not agree more.
2: <laughs> we could have it all. <laughs>
1: I could not agree more. And one of the things that, that I really feel like we all need to get back to is to talking about our values. What are our patients' values? What are our clinicians' values? And how do we match those up? Right? And, and when we're talking about that mismatch between the clinicians and the administrators, I, I, think, I think they're both doing their level best to do the best job at what they were trained to do. For the administrators, they were trained to watch the bottom line, to make sure the revenue streams were right, to make sure finances looked okay. For the clinicians, it's to get the best patient outcomes. And the challenge is that those two goals are sometimes either divergent or conflicting.
2: Or we haven't defined the problem correctly. You know, I, there's a quote from uh, Dwight Eisenhower, I think, who said, you know, every time I meet a problem I can't solve, I make the problem bigger. Mm-hmm. Because I try to make the problem bigger. He, well, he wants to widen the boundaries because well, once you begin to work more broadly, solutions appear that otherwise aren't there. So so look, I mean, here, here's a way to think about it. The first of all, all the clinicians and the administrators, to use your your framing, they're both working in a pathological setup. You know, the whole setup of payment and the way funds flow and the use, the, the, the requirements set up, it, it, it's, it's really quite broken. Uh, and they both will tell you the doctor will talk about paperwork that drives them crazy. And the administrator will talk about paperwork that drives them crazy. You know, they, they, they right. everyone knows they're swimming in this chaos, in, in a, in a poorly designed environment, but But, you know, they're both, like you said, they're both doing the job. The doctor nurse is trying to say, here's a person who's suffering. I want to relieve the suffering. That's my job. What the administrator is really feeling is, I want to create an environment, an organization that will allow you to relieve their suffering in in perpetuity. It's sustainable. Right. And, 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 you know, without the clinicians, the administrator has nothing to offer. Without the administrator, the clinicians don't have the... uh, the context to to work in, so they're both kind of right. The problem is, it's, it's so too easily framed as 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 this uh, combat or or difference of go- goals. They're they're complementary goals, but now you have to widen the you have to widen the conversation. Say, so well, why 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 would we good people be trapped in this dialogue? Don't we? Isn't there enough around that we actually could solve it? Yes, but we have to think bigger. We have to think. Uh, uh, Moss Cantor from Harvard Business School says y- you don't have to think out of the box. You have to think out of the building, right? <laughs> and that, and we've been unable to do that. I also, I mean, look, we're naive to say there isn't a, a political side to this too. <clears throat> it means you, you need to have in in a democracy elected leaders that want to solve the problem that that say you know mm-hmm. uh, we, we we need to we need to. Re, help reorganize policy, regulation, payment to make it possible for these people to do what they
1: want to. Right. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm all for um, making the problem bigger and erasing all of our expectations that fall under the umbrellas that we see now. Because I think that's, that's really, um, if nothing else, it's a good exercise in seeing what the problems really are. Um, so... When we talk about those, if we make the, pig, the problem bigger, right, and we're, and so that means that, that we're opening up the, the sector in which we're, the sectors in which we're talking or thinking, does that change the stakeholders that you think are part of this conversation? And, and where do you think each of those stakeholders fall?
2: well to, to, I always to me it's 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 uh, like it's a layered it's it's a nested problem so let, first just just say within within the walls of a hospital, just within those walls that the clinicians and the administrators want to solve problems together instead of against each other. Uh, I think just within that boundary you can you can do it by looking for waste i think there's there could be a contract, a compact between the clinicians and the administrators to say what let's find the stuff that isn't helping anybody at all and together stop it. Uh, And I think you can do a a ton of that. So you don't have to think too big about it. But, you know, I've been writing recently about a much, much edgier uh, view that, again, makes makes me feel uncomfortable. It has to do with um, beginning to work on what makes us sick in the first place. Yeah. And that's where we've been made so little progress. The social determinants of, of health are so and powerful. they're mega powerful, but we don't we just leave them there. you know hunger, homelessness, uh, violence in communities, uh, recreational deficits, uh, problems of uh, of uh, uh, structural racism and and, and uh, now climate change, uh, we, we keep it I mean, keep it my friend says, admiring the problem instead of solving the problem, and we've got to get about solving. That is a matter. That's two things. To me, that is new players. You know, uh, the, the, the thing on my mind right now <laughs> that is, sounds like it's from the moon is criminal justice. Uh,
1: it's not from the moon. <laughs>
2: well, 2.3 2. million people in this country are in, are in prisons or jails. Uh, yeah. 10 million cycle through prisons every year. They're overwhelmingly people of color, uh, overwhelmingly people who are poor. Uh, 70% have mental illness or substance abuse. They're, they're, they have illnesses. And we have... I mean, the, the real officials don't call it a criminal justice system at all. They wouldn't use the word justice. It's just a it's criminal system.
1: It's and the criminal punishment system. A criminal punishment what, system. Yeah.
2: And, uh, and it's, so if I told you there were 3, 2.3 million people in this country who are afflicted by a condition that robs them of spirit, increases their risks of chronic illness, fails to treat their mental illnesses. If I told you there was something going on affecting 2.3 million people, uh, you'd probably say we should do something about it. But we really haven't. There's no, there's no real cogent plan in this country. We only get worse. We don't have proper alternatives to incarceration. We don't have standards for health care and incarcerated for incarcerated people. We don't have, we don't have effective mechanisms to help people re into the community. Now, whose problem is that? Is that the mayor's problem? Is it the governor's problem? The president's problem? Is it the police's problem? Is it the sheriff's problem? Or is it also healthcare's problem? And I... I think yes. it's hard. It's, uh, yeah. I mean, if we, we, keep, we, we, we take a pass, we say, oh, no, no, that's not that 2.3 million, not that cause of illness. We're not going to work on that. That's what we're doing. Right. We're doing it with hunger, 40 million people in this country with food insecurity. We're doing it with homelessness. We're doing it with climate change. We're doing it with integration policy. We're taking a pass as an industry. Not everyone, not all the time, but too much. And I say no. And so when you say other players... Yeah, we got to start working with other sectors as part of our job. What does that mean for an individual doctor or nurse? I don't know. I mean, it means at least exercise your citizenship. That's part of it. But you have to take a big breath here and go back to the moral determinants that you've written about and say, no, I guess if we are healers, we have to get engaged. And that's a really big ask, and it's the one I'm... And i trying to think through now in these recent months.
1: So I, I absolutely agree that I think um, exercising our rights as citizens to speak up in whatever way that that means, in whatever way that is comfortable for us, um, is critical. I think the other thing would be to, to find those places where you feel passion and reach out. Reach out, you know, try in your own way to break down the silos, right? So we're working, the public defender community reached out to us and said, this is our language too. And so we have reached out to them and have started working with them. Social workers have said the same thing. Educators have said the same thing. And so there are so there are so many opportunities for us to be able to reach across those silos, and start thinking about how education could be better, how criminal justice could be better, and how that in turn could feed back into better healthcare, better communities.
2: I, I love that framing, Wendy. I think if, if you're feeling helpless, take action and. You will find in any domain you care about, if it's criminal justice or education or climate or elder care, in any, in any environment in your in your community, you're going to find people of like mind. You, you know, and we say in IHI, never worry alone. You know, you're, you're much better together than separately. So I totally go along with that. That's in your civic life, you're, you're, when you're not seeing a patient one-to-one. And I think we need to do that. I'm seeing in the youth, now, for example, I'm working with the American Medical Students Association quite a bit. They're there. I mean, they're really thinking about
1: mm-hmm. they are.
2: engagement from the professional podium, but in the in this sector. And I'm glad that people are, are reaching out to you, um, I guess, to dial back a second, though, you, you know, it, what in micro behaviors, like when you're in your office or in your making your rounds or seeing this patient, you know, what what does this have to do with our who we are and what we spend our energies doing in those, in those local environments. That's a question I'd love to get more precise answers for and really good ideas for people. Uh, I
1: agree.
2: One is just inquire about interdependencies, you know, uh, which I think in the COVID era, people are learning more about, but it's like, I always used to say to medical students, uh, tomorrow morning, uh, find a nurse and say to the nurse, is there anything I could have done last week to make your work easier? Just try it. I don't know if anyone right. ever did that, but this kind of sense of being together, that's healing.
1: I think. Absolutely. I mean that, that whole idea of what do you need to be successful today back and forth, not just administrators to clinicians, but clinicians to each other. What do you need to be, successful today or tomorrow or next week.
2: Yeah, leaders uh, in administrators in in organizations are well advised to to uh, engage in that inquiry. I'm working with a hospital in Brazil right now, uh, which is they're they're working on what what they call a physician compact, which was uh, language introduced by my friend, uh, Jack Silverson uh, and his wife. Um, who uh, believe that it's possible to establish a form of dialogue in organizations between clinicians and managers, which opens that, which opens the door to shared aim, and then ask the question you you just framed, which is, you know, what, so what, what am I giving and what am I getting? What, what, What are we promising each other? And that deal, that compact is a very healing conversation. In the case of this Brazilian hospital, they've come up with about seven or eight categories of things that each party, as it were, each, each group uh, promises mm. and offers to the other in the domains of, uh, you know, communication and stewardship and, uh, and focusing on patients and so on.
1: That sounds like a great program.
2: I think it's, uh, it's game changing.
1: Mm. So we're just about out of time but i wonder if there's anything else that you feel is critical for us to talk about or for for folks to go out and do today or tomorrow to start feeling like they're they're not as they're not helpless
2: yeah I mean, right now my heart's so much with the people who are giving the care they're working so hard i just you know take right. <laughs> give yourself some space i guess is part of what i'm thinking because you know, you, what they say in airplanes, you have to put your own oxygen mask on first, and you got to really do have to remember that. Um, right. But I, there's the one thing we haven't talked about that I think is relevant to this conversation it has to do with the role of uh, patients and families. Um, and here I've developed a very strong, almost too strong an opinion, because I'm not sure I'm open-minded about it anymore. But if you're trying to work out a problem in relationship with, say, moral injury, a, a generator of moral injury, if you get a patient in the room, with the the parties involved or a family, and they're part of the dialogue and part of the problem solving and part of the identification of possibilities, it always gets better. Patients are impatient with our squabbles with each other. You know, but what they want to say to us, I think is, okay, stop that. Now look, need you both, let's talk. And I, I think that idea of presence of the patient and presence of the family and presence of the community in the, in the activities, the improvement, the governance, the agenda setting, the strategies of organizations is itself healing. And I really, really urge that, that tactic.
1: I agree. And I think part of the reason that we don't include that perspective is because we think that these problems are compartmentalized, that it's a. It, that the clinician that the problem is with the clinician and the clinician is managing it and it doesn't leak out into patient care um, but from my own experience that isn't that isn't always the case. I mean, if it's happening to the clinician, it's happening to the patient.
2: you betcha it's really the case. I, I think that uh, the, the, you know the, the fact no babe, patients know something's going on, but they can help on point i was uh, there's a wonderful wonderful uh Organization in in London called the East London Foundation Trust. It's a mental health system, which I've worked with for years. Brilliantly led, and they take uh, patient and family engagement really seriously. Uh, to the ex- to the following extent, I was there um, maybe a year and a half ago uh, at a meeting, which was a meeting of the senior staff of the hospital and patients. They call it, uh, the people with lived experience, is their term. There probably were, I'll guess, 70 or 80 people in the room. I would estimate probably a third to a half of them were patients. Wow. I could not tell who was a patient and who was a, who was a staff member, who was executive or not. That, I couldn't tell. They, what That's we were great. having is a conversation about how things were going, what the redesigns were needed, what was being tried, what wasn't being tried, what was working, what was not working, with full participation of everybody. Right. Uh, and and that, that whole attitude of co-production – and colleagueship, I think, is you, you couldn't be in that room without feeling inspired. It would not be possible to be there without feeling moral connection instead of moral injury.
1: Yeah, and, and that means that the patients, the clinicians, and the administrators all felt equally empowered, which is yeah. really where we want to be.
2: Equally empowered and aware they were trying to get the same things done. Correct. They just needed each other to do it. And right. uh, that's a better place to work.
1: I could not agree more. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And um, I look forward to continuing this conversation at some future point.
2: Me too. And thanks for, your, thanks for your leadership and your work.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thank you very much for doing that interview, Wendy. Um, there are some key points that I think are worth just underlining at this stage. And one of the things that I think is really important is the idea of the discomfort that some of us have with the idea of morality and the moral vocabulary, um, insofar as it can sound accusatory. But as Dr. Berwick says, the key thing about morality is that it explains the need for values and how values are a key part of both the problem here and the solutions.
1: And and what he talked about as the solutions are some really overarching but... Um, globally important and applicable concepts, which are, let's figure out the stuff that isn't helping anybody, and let's, let's stop that waste, let's agree to all come together to stop the waste, and then shift that investment to addressing the social determinants of health, which some are calling now the moral determinants of health. Let's expect our leaders and ask our leaders to be servant leaders who are concerned with how we are successful. So asking us, what do you need to be successful today? And then getting it for us. And then finally, it's critical that we bring patients and family into these discussions, but also empower them to feel as equals, to make medicine what we all want it to be.
0: Exactly. And one of the reasons that we even started this podcast was to Develop this kind of community. And as Dr. Berwick says, never worry alone. Or as um, some people say, a problem shared is a problem halved. We hope that this podcast will allow us to be more of a community and working towards these goals.
1: So, on the next episode, we'll be talking to a clinician who was on the front lines of care. Dr. Jane Kim is an emergency room physician who worked in Brooklyn during the COVID surge in March. And she brings a wealth of, of experience both from a healthcare perspective, a clinician perspective, and also what it was like personally for her to work through that and watch her colleagues and friends become ill.
0: Yeah, this is a, a very powerful interview from somebody on the, the front lines. And I think you'll find it fascinating and um, an important uh, interview to listen to.
1: So let's continue this conversation. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at wdeanmd.
0: You can find me on Twitter at Simon simontalbotmd.
1: You can find us on Facebook, Moral Injury of Healthcare, or on Instagram, Moral Injury.
0: And you can also email us directly on info at moralinjury.healthcare.
1: Or you can send us a voice memo.
0: Great. So we look forward to hearing from you.
1: Please join us next time for our conversation with Dr. Jane Kim.